In 2022, functional medicine had its finger on the pulse of several prominent topics in the medical research and offers new ways to clinicians to enhance the health and healing of their patients. On this episode of Pathways to Wellbeing, we're recapping the functional medicine year in review. The research that came out this year on mast cells being tied to circadian cycles, having a circadian rhythm was fascinating. And that in individuals whose circadian cycle was altered, mast cells were activated in a dysregulatory way. I find that fascinating because here again, we have mast cells as a mediator, but a triggering event could be a change in a person's circadian cycle and sleep was called out here. And I think this is a real opportunity again for the lifestyle foundation of functional medicine. IFM's Director of Medical Education, Dr. Dan Lukaser, and the Director of Medical Education Initiatives, Dr. Robert Luby, are going to discuss the clinical advances and clinical pearls gleaned from this calendar year. Welcome, Drs. Lukaser and Luby. We're all looking forward to your commentary today. Thank you, Kalia. And thank you, Kalia. Dan, let's start with the microbiome. That's always a big topic. It was a big topic in 2022. And there's really two emerging trends that we've selected out of many that we possibly could have. One is the finding of polypharmacy having an adverse impact on the microbiome and uh, new thoughts on therapeutics with regard to the microbiome, especially with regard to fecal transplant and the future of that intervention. I'll start with the polypharmacy issue. What was found in, in the new re emerging research was that uh, polypharmacy has an adverse impact on the richness of the gut microbiota. And this is something that, you know, even beyond antibiotics, non-antibiotic uh, pharmacy. So those individuals with more uh, prescription drugs tended to have a less healthy, less diverse, less rich microbiome. I guess the comment I would make here, Dan, would be that if we extrapolate this to, you know, let's let's consider pharmaceuticals new to nature molecules, so to speak. If we extrapolate this to other new to nature molecules, what does it make us think of? I think it reinforces a lot of the principles of functional medicine because we would think of food additives. We're swallowing those. Those could have a similar impact as a, a pharmaceutical. We can think of what's on the foods, herbicides, pesticides. And then, uh, you know, in terms of policy, I think policy is a big theme here in this next half hour. Uh, there's been a lot of pressure to get glyphosate and uh, herbicides containing that uh, substance out of the food chain. And that's been a win, but we may wanna look at what's replacing that. Uh, what, what are the new to nature molecules in the herbicides and pesticides that farmers will be using? We know that two of those are paraquat and rotenone. Research needs to be done on those to make sure that they don't have a similar effect. So Dan, that starts it off with a bang. I'll, I'll take it over to you now. Well, thanks, Robert. And I would just add to that, that this doesn't seem to be um, uh, out of left field. I mean, as you know, we have been talking about things like uh, um, artificial sweeteners uh, having an effect on the microbiome. We know that there have, this is just a larger study that I think is cementing the fact that uh, first, uh, the, there are many, many, as you say, new to nature molecules that 
clearly have an effect on the microbiome. And then the second part of what you brought up is that um, the microbiome, uh, this is another flash, is important in all sorts of ways for uh, the human organism. We are a multi-microbial uh, organism. We are we are more than just our human selves. And I think we all know that. And you know, every year we learn more about the microbiome. And every year we learn there's even more complexity than we realized the year before. before. And so I, I think there's a couple of, uh, from a couple of uh, articles that have come out uh, just over the past year, there's a couple of things that I maybe would reinforce or uh, bring forward. And I think that first, the uh, idea that um, diversity is good. And that is certainly one of the things that I try to instill or teach uh, patients that I'm seeing when I'm looking, when I'm talking about the microbiome or I'm looking at some sort of stool analysis and looking at. Um, the, their diversity index or various ways to assess diversity. The more diverse the microbiome, uh, I think the better. And um, obviously there are bad bugs and there are uh, not so good bugs, but I think the things that we can do to diversify the microbiome are uh, very important. I, I think uh, another kind of uh, big picture that I've come away with, with certainly some of the um, information this year, but also kind of over the past few years is that there are short-term solutions to changing that microbiome. I look at um, things like uh, a low FODMAP diet, a short-term solution, and can often be a very important short-term solution. Uh, but uh, I think long-term, we know, and there's been recent studies that show that um, that with uh, uh, a FODMAP diet, a low FODMAP diet, I should say, uh, there are reductions in bifidobacteria, for instance, and that can be good short-term, but we also know that long-term, that's probably not so good. And I think there are other short-term diets that are out there that I think um, certainly changing the microbiome uh, can have, uh, uh, you know, a pronounced effect short-term. We all know about the carnivore diet, and I think short-term, while there's uh, not a whole lot of study or not a whole lot of research, short-term, there can be some positive benefits, but I think long-term is, is what I'm looking for. And I think, therefore, the long-term solutions that we're looking at, uh, at least that I look at consistently, are you know, prebiotics, probiotics, symbiotics, and now this new term that has come into vogue in the past couple of years of postbiotics. Those are metabolites. And uh, I often think of metabolites are, are the words of uh, universal biological language. And, and so I, I think there are new ways to, um, to affect uh, how the microbiome is and what it does. And uh, uh, I don't know, I could, uh, we could both go on uh, a bit longer about, uh, uh, quite a bit longer about those kinds of things. And I, I certainly have a few other things to say, but I'm, I'm curious about your 
kind of take on uh, those uh, the the new research on on probiotics and symbiotics and postbiotics. Any any other things that you think that stick out for you in the past year? I think it's uh, it reflects our ancestral diet to some degree. That uh, some of those things that are so good with prebiotics are going to be beneficial for the microbiome. I think uh, the other thing we'll see trending in the future is that those postbiotics of which you spoke, the metabolites, will become uh, part of the pharmaceutical regimen of the future. So uh, there's, I, I like to you know put a put a bow on this topic and say there's at least two opportunities here. One is that this is the kind of research showing that polypharmacy adversely affects the gut microbiome. Uh, this is going to make its way into the consciousness of the conventional practitioner. Um, and then I would say for those functional medicine clinicians out there listening to this. Think of the opportunity we've got here to reduce polypharmacy. We know that functional medicine so often can lead to deprescribing of medications. And that, I think, is one of the great opportunities here that we can, uh, as we deprescribe, the, the other benefit, not just for detoxification, enzymes and such, is we're going to improve the microbiome now. This kind of research points to, in that direction. So Dan, unless you have a, a final word, we could move on to the uh, therapeutics and that uh, the emerging research on fecal transplant. Yeah, my my, uh, I think uh, the emerging research there, I I think is really fascinating. I, I guess my final word on those things is, as uh, we have, I forgot who it was that uh, I have quoted, um, but it's in, instead of this uh, warring idea that we have with the microbiome, it's being a uh, a wildlife microbial manager, I think is a better way to look at uh, what we're doing and how we're living, hopefully in some kind of harmony with that microbiome. Yeah, Dan, you've always been good with Yogi Berra. So I think before this podcast is over, let, why don't you come up with what Yogi Berra would have said about the microbiome? That would be I'll think a, of a Yogi Bear. That would be a real pearl for our listeners, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, there was a there was an article that came out this year uh, speaking to the future of fecal transplanting and uh, pointing out, you know, it, with this theme of new to nature molecules, perhaps that uh, autologous fecal transplants, where a, a person takes their own stool and that is what gets transplanted, is a real viable idea in the future. But the, the point was made that we have uh, such a toxic society really that our, our fecal bank materials, shall we say, of adults who've lived in this world for decades is probably not the healthiest way to use fecal transplants. And the suggestion is made to use autologous uh, uh, transplants from a feces that was banked when we were young children. And I find this very intriguing the logistics of it and the infrastructure needed is pretty daunting. And I would also say that with regard to the new to nature molecules and even you know, the number of chemicals that we know a, a, a fetus is exposed to in utero, Dan, what do you think are the possibilities of doing that? Is that really going to be beneficial if we are banking our stool as uh, infants say, even though we've already been exposed to a lot of, a lot of uh, factors that affect the microbiome? I, I think this might be pie in the sky thinking, but um, what do you think? A lot of resources it would take to get this to happen. Uh, yeah, I think that, and I think when I when I read that article, I was thinking, and this will date us both. I was thinking of the Jetsons, <laughs> that, that old cartoon 
of uh, what's happening in the future. And I mean, it's, as you say, it's, it's interesting. I think it is, uh, we're a long way from that. I think we're decades from that. And how much, how many uh, individuals are, would really bank that. And I think we need to do things to clean up our environment now as opposed to focusing on that. It's it's an interesting thought experiment at some level, but it's not something that I'm really focused on at, the, at this point. Now, uh, fecal my, microbial transplants are, uh, they're, they're here now and they're going to uh, continue to, I think, expand not only from, you know, what they are currently uh, uh, FDA approved for, which is uh, C. difficile, intractable C. difficile. But <clears throat> I think there's now some research on uh, IBD, and and that may be uh, that may be the next step. And and then there are other places now. There are things that one has to watch out for with FMT. But uh, I I think it's a a fascinating and really uh, here to stay and expanding therapeutic. Uh, intervention. Okay, well, let's move on to mast cells. That is increasing on the awareness of uh, the media and certainly coming out in the literature more. Uh, the way I'd like to think of the research on mast cells is mass, I, I think we don't want to think of it as a silo, like, oh, there's you have a mast cell condition or a mast cell disease, but rather it's part of the inflammatory response or the hyperinflammatory response. Even with COVID, it was identified, and I think this accelerated it, it was identified as part of the hyperinflammatory response of COVID. So the way I think of it, Dan, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, is that this is one arm or one aspect of the immune system that kicks into gear when the immune system gets activated, uh, either in a regulatory or a dysregulatory way, so that with our patients, anytime there is a dysregulatory response of the immune system, we need to think of mast cell uh, mast cell activation as a part of that. And I think it's a real advantage because we want to always use multimodal uh, regimens in functional medicine. And to address mast cell activation, there's there's a set of different therapeutic interventions that we need, and this can just really expand our therapeutic arsenal in a very positive way if we if we maintain um, vigilance for it and just consider that we're going to need to pay attention to mast cells in many different diseases, but not so much think of it as a thing in and of itself. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you, Robert. I, I think that in the uh, functional medicine uh, vernacular, mast cells are a mediator. And the question then is, what is triggering those mast cells? And as you said, uh, how there are uh, there appears to be um, a, a variety of triggers, and, and that's where I think it gets really complex and a bit murky. There are not, as I've seen it thus far, there are not great uh, biological um, markers or biomarkers that, are, that one can really use. And so it's, uh, well, one can use uh, clinically at least. And um, so it seems to be a diagnosis of somewhat of exclusion and and but I think having said that I think that if you suspect um, some sort of activation I think there's a lot of foundational things one can look at to uh, decrease uh, the potential triggering of mast cells so 
it's, as you say, it's all a part of the, uh, you know, taking a, uh, a good history and a timeline and looking at what's activating those mast cells. What are, what are the triggering events? Well said, and we should never let the absence of uh, accurate laboratory markers uh, deter us from making clinical judgments and, and saying clinically, it appears that this person would have mast cell activation. And if we can introduce a safe therapeutic as a therapeutic probe, really, a therapeutic slash diagnostic probe, I think that's well justified. And uh, to stick with your, yeah, to stick with your um, analogy of mast cells are certainly are mediators and, and other, and can be triggers as well. The research that came out this year on mast cells being tied to circadian cycles, having a circadian rhythm was fascinating. And that in individuals whose circadian cycle was altered, mast cells were activated in a dysregulatory way. I find that fascinating because here again, we have mast cells as a mediator, but a triggering event could be a change in a person's circadian cycle and sleep was called out here. And I think this is a real opportunity again for the lifestyle foundation of functional medicine that uh, regular sleep routines and sleep hygiene and all the things we talk about, the benefits of sleep, add another factor that it affects and that's the mast cell health or mast cell function. So Dan, what do you think about that? I again agree, and I think that we're, uh, you know, there are other um, there's other research that we're going to uh, maybe get to that you know hot topics in in uh, 2022 in terms of looking at uh, COVID and looking at anxiety, and we know that um, foundational lifestyle factors, which include sleep, obviously are uh, very much tied to, or it can be tied and can be a mediator in just about everything. But those two, those two areas, there's, uh, there's newer research that shows um, both of those are um, media, uh, both of those issues have improvements when you improve your both quality and I think uh, quantity of sleep for some of us quantity of sleep. Very good. Let's move on to one of your favorite topics, which is fasting and time-restricted eating. And some of the, uh, let's start with a kind of a uh, tee it up easy for us. There was some research that showed that fasting is beneficial immunologically and uh, uh, can have anti-inflammatory effects, et cetera. Um, I'll just start off by saying, well, we know that eating itself is a pro-inflammatory event. Um, fasting should be the opposite. So do you, is it, do you see anything new here, any new opportunities clinically for our practitioners in the emerging literature that you know, fasting has all these benefits for the immune system, but beyond what we already know? Well, I guess I'd say a couple of things. One is I think the literature continues to support different uh, aspects of what we call intermittent fasting, which, you know, under that rubric, I put time-restricted eating, which is, you know, eating on a regular 24-hour schedule, but restricting that eating win window, and then uh, greater than 24 hours is, uh, is what I refer to as longer-term fasting. And then um, you know, fasting mimicking diet, which has some of apparently has some of the 
um, attributes of, of fasting, which are, as you know, um, autophagy and ketosis or nutritional ketosis. And now this um, newer area of uh, uh, research, I think, of mitophagy, which is just the mitochondrial uh, uh, autophagy, and I think that there, you know, there, there has been nothing that I've seen. So now there's research on uh, congestive heart failure that I saw there, and you know, there, there continues to be um, supportive research for all of the things that well, I think we probably talked about last year, and in, in terms of uh, cardiovascular, blood sugar, um, uh, adjunctive for for cancer. The, the one uh, caveat that I would add that, that I've started to think about more um, is just remembering protein requirements when, doing, when, when fasting, either fasting uh, with a time-restricted eating window or longer-term fasting. I, I think that, um, that uh, particularly with that former, I think that there there has been now um, at least newer research to me that really suggests that the amount of protein um, can often be insufficient as as we age and as we age we many of us uh, uh, particularly the elderly get less protein so I think we have to think about that more in our in, when we're counseling patients on. Uh, on fasting regimes. Not that I'm uh, saying that fasting regimes aren't uh, important, useful, and can be therapeutic, but I think we need to put that into the mix. Anything you saw in the literature, Robert, that, that you want to comment on? I would add that I noticed in a lot of the literature, they talked about adherence as well. And clinically, what's so important is, you know, the volunteers in these studies might not have been volunteers. They might have been paid to do this. And it's often said that the best diet is the diet that the patient will adhere to. So with that in mind, I would offer, I think this uh, idea of fasting offers a great opportunity for peer support, uh, shared medical appointments, um, to get a group of individuals who, you know, their motivation might be questionable or their willpower might be questionable, to get them together to do the time-restricted eating or the intermittent fasting and have them support each other, I think just offers a great opportunity to uh, magnify and amplify the, the potential clinical benefits of uh, fasting and time-restricted feeding. And it goes so well with um, just the whole lifestyle um, foundation that we emphasize. You know, a, a shared medical appointment becomes a form of relationships as well and can be stress reduction. So that's how I like to think of fasting interventions as well, Dan. I'll, I'll turn it back to you before we go on. Well. Uh, I absolutely agree with you um, on all points, and I'm. Uh, this is not a setup, I don't think, but I have been uh, um, doing over the past uh, eighteen months, uh, maybe a little longer. I've been doing virtual shared medical appointments, and one of the areas that I focused on, uh, surprise, surprise, is fasting. And I think you're exactly right. I think doing that in particular. Um, but of course, there's other shared medical appointments, which I think are a great uh, way to um, uh, uh, to get people working together and and sharing their 
both uh, successes and, and, uh, and challenges, but uh, shared medical appointments and fasting really go together. Amen to that. And uh, I'll, I'll add something to the protein that you said needs to be um, attended to with fasting and time-restricted eating. And let's move on to our next topic, and that would be spices and herbs. Let's, you know, if you're going to be eating less food, let's make it more nutritionally dense. And spices and herbs, this is my favorite topic, Dan. I, I want to throw <laughs> this in here every year for our year in review because, I, I, you know, some of my meals are like, I, I'm having a little food with my spices here. It's, uh, it's the other way around. I, I'm, I'm heavy on the spices. You know, we, we know they have antioxidant properties. We know they are cardioprotective. They have detoxification capacity, et cetera, et cetera. They can mitigate the uh, adverse effects of some, some forms of food preparation. Uh, the other thing is they can be very inexpensive and they can be accessible in food deserts because you can grow your own herbs at home, no matter where you live, no matter how far you are from a source of good, nutritious food. So for all those reasons, I just love the idea of spices and herbs. And I think it is a critical adjunct if you are going to be doing calorie restriction or time-restricted eating or fasting of any kind. So Dan, I know you're a gardener, so you've got to have a perspective on this. I am, I am uh, uh, very much in agreement with you. I, I had heard Michael Stone, a colleague of ours, uh, a number of years ago. I can't unfortunately find the reference. I should ask him. But he said, uh, he talked about uh, some epidemiological study in which uh, there was improvements in uh, various parameters on one tablespoon of herbs, of spices daily. And that's not that much. Obviously, there are, as you said, a variety of uh, herbs that have a variety of effects from curcuminoids to uh, thyme to black pepper to cinnamon. We all know about those. Um, but I think to your point, uh, just getting uh, used to and encouraging uh, increased um, uh, um, uh, culinary adventures with herbs. I'm I'm big into uh, into curries, as I know you are, and one of the reasons is that it's so complex. You put so many things into a curry, or so many different herbs, or at least I do, at least six generally that I think just, uh, and, and they make such a flavorful uh, addition or change in that uh, particular uh, dish that you're cooking. So that's a long-winded way to say, yes, more herbs, uh, more spices into both your foods, but also as um, I have fairly regularly and also try to fairly regularly encourage my patients to have some kind of smoothie I am generally putting some kind of herb mixture, particularly ginger. Um, I haven't I haven't gotten to turmeric yet. I know that's a great herb to put into a smoothie, but I like the ginger in there. Ginger and and lemon and and uh, basil sometimes I put into a smoothie. What do you put into your smoothies, Doctor Doctor Libby? Well, you know, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna spare the audience my re the recipe for my dairy free, sugar free turmeric, black pepper, gelato that's spiked with star anise and cardamom and fenugreek. 
So I won't go there, but I would just say that when I remodel my kitchen, I'm going to have to go with an orange theme because there are turmeric stains everywhere. And if you look at my wardrobe, um, man, if I had orange camouflage, you wouldn't even be able to see me in the kitchen probably. So, but yeah, I stains everywhere, Dan, it's kind of embarrassing, but we better move on before we get too far down this road. Um, let's talk about long COVID and functional medicine. You know, long COVID is emerging as perhaps the biggest story. Uh, of the year and maybe 2023 too. Let's hope not, but let's hope that it's, if it does, it's because of good news about that. I think uh, we're preaching to the choir here when we say this is a multi-system disease. This is a chronic disease. It should fit very well into the systems biology approach of functional medicine. And we think it will, because we will not just try to treat symptoms. We will not just try to treat one organ. We will try to treat the whole, the whole body as it is affected. And I think different individuals will have um, different aspects of their physiology affected to different degrees. So an opportunity I see here, Dan, is to identify subtypes. And to, to, to the extent that we can do that, we can really personalize the therapy and uh, pick uh, our multimodal regimen with much more precision. And I will, I will be shameless here and say, uh, at our annual conference this year, we're certainly going to focus on long COVID, but I'll turn it back to you, Dan. That's my initial thought, teeing it up for long COVID. Yeah, I think it's an opportunity, as they say, and a challenge, because uh, I I think that functional medicine um, and the way we, are, we look at things uh, can have a significant impact and, and uh, so, I mean, I think we all have experience and we all have, uh, uh, and we're all moving through this. There are, I mean, I, I've seen now a few different um, headlines and, and studies about the estimated uh, expenditures that are over like $3 trillion that uh, there was uh, some newscast recently, similar to the Great Depression, there was um, uh, an article, I believe, in Medscape uh, uh, that uh, uh, basically showed that conventional medicine, uh, working hard at it, there there are no guidelines, um, and so that many conventional doctors are, uh, you know, making it up as they go along, and um, that's uh, it's important that we try to uh, move forward and and uh, put a stake in the ground because I think. I think functional medicine has something to offer there, um, and uh, you know it's uh, so it's it's something that I, I think we're as you say we're going to be moving forward on and and uh, as we should uh, you're always going to start with the foundations of uh, the modifiable lifestyle factors as as I mentioned before with sleep but uh, sleep and nutrition and uh, hydration and uh, 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 stress reduction and and movement as as one can but I think that there are a number of other areas around the functional medicine matrix model in terms of uh, mitochondrial dysfunction and and uh, transport etc that uh, I think we really need to be looking at um, so, it's an opportunity and a challenge, as I say, Robert. Right, and um, hopefully the virulence of the COVID itself uh, does not reemerge in, in a strong way. And if it does not, you know, then long COVID is perhaps even a greater threat 
to the public health uh, than than COVID itself. So I think it's also an opportunity to you know throw down the gauntlet to our field and say, in addition to identifying subtypes so that we can treat with more precision, let's identify the antecedents and the triggers of long COVID. You know, which individuals will come down with this, uh, and which ones will get it more severe? Is it related to uh, lifestyle factors? Is it related to you know disruption of circadian function, things like that? So that we can actually um, take people who don't have long COVID, if COVID is going to stay with us forever, and get them adopting those factors that we have identified as antecedents and triggers and to avoid those so that they stay healthy, even if they do come down with the virus. So those are some you know, aspirational research uh, activities that I'd like to see going forward. But Dan, let's turn to anxiety. Let, 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 oh. me, let me just add one other thing here, Robert, sure. is that you know, the, uh, the statistics are wide and staggering. So anywhere between five to 30% of individuals who get infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, appear to come down with uh, long COVID. You know, that's somewhere between, I don't know, 7 million and 30 million people. Um, we're talking in either case, we're talking a lot of individuals uh, on either end of that spectrum. There's There's a lot of individuals who have some kind of long COVID symptomatology. And I just think that it's important. They, they can't all go to specialists. And that's why it's important for functional medicine and for primary care in general uh, to be informed and to have uh, answers because um, it, it will overwhelm the system if we don't put, as I said, a stake in the ground and, and really feel that we have something to offer there. And on that note, I, one other thing I just thought of is another opportunity to emphasize our theme here of the, the power of shared medical appointments. These um, Long COVID is yep. really dispiriting to an individual and to have that peer support, try to get, it th get through this with other individuals, I think is going to be a very effective way, especially before we have real effective uh, molecular agents, shall we say. Um, speaking of molecular agents, it was found that mindfulness practices can have uh, equal effects to pharmaceutical anxiolytics with regard to anxiety disorder and the positive benefits of exercise and lifestyle changes on anxiety. And I'll start off with a couple of comments here, Dan. Uh, it makes me think of policy, for one thing. If exercise is so good for anxiety, and we know what school children have been through with these past couple of years of COVID and homeschooling and whatnot. Um, it seems to, to me that school recess and physical education becomes ever more important as a policy issue, a public health issue, uh, because exercise has now, you know, strong evidence that uh, it can be uh, mitigative of anxiety and also policy for workplace to add movement to the workplace. And, uh, for employers to adopt that as uh, a way of keeping their employees healthy. So I think those are really important aspects. And it, it also makes me think of, you know, we think of the anxiety mostly as a brain related condition. Why are we so surprised that the brain is so amenable to exercise and lifestyle changes? I think we, we artificially uh, isolate the brain and say somehow it's privileged and it's, it's not or it's immune or not affected by these dietary and lifestyle changes. So 
Um, I think we need to change that whole mindset, Dan. I, perhaps the brain is the most sensitive to lifestyle changes and dietary changes. Your thoughts? I loved um, uh, recess <laughs> when I was in school. It was great. And I think we should have more of it. Um, so I thought you kind of described something that we have known. And again, it's always good when new research comes out. But as, as I think we've said many times, if you could put exercise in a bottle, um, it would be the highest uh, selling uh, monetized therapy that there is. I just add one other thing, I think, Robert, in terms of uh, you, you talked about uh, exercise and, and um, uh, mindfulness practices, and um, those are clearly, and diet clearly hugely important. And I would just uh, wrap into that, this idea of getting in touch or getting back to nature. And we know that evolutionarily, we have, uh, as a species, we have gone through something on the order of 50,000 generations living in nature, and perhaps the last 50 or so, where we've lived in a more agrarian society. So we are entrained to nature as a species. And I think, uh, and there are studies, not this year that I saw, but there are studies um, nature bathing and that sort of thing. And getting back into nature um, is, I think, an important way to get that exercise. So I would just, that, that would be my addition to what you've said. I love it. And keeping with the nature theme and the, the exercise theme, uh, the, the next topic that emerged in 2022, I absolutely love because it's about sleep. And uh, I'll start it off by saying one way I get into nature is with moonlight bike rides. And I'm not talking in the evening, I'm talking in the morning. And the thing I love about this research with sleep, it showed that sleep has a positive effect on dysglycemia. Uh, and the, the factors are not, not even how long you sleep, but the median point of your sleep in the night, the earlier the median point is. In other words, the earlier you get to bed, the more of a, a positive impact it has on dysglycemia. So I, I love it, Dan. It, it, it gives credence to the old saying of early to bed, early to rise makes a person healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, I live by this. I love my early morning moonlight bike rides in the dark. And I, I you know, one way I spend time in nature. So sleep, it, it's great. It, it really has to be seriously considered as a, um, a major therapeutic intervention with uh, significant physiological benefits. Agreed. Yeah, no, agreed. I don't really have that much to add other than I think it's good for everyone to be thinking about sleep. But in terms of just what you commented on, uh, counseling patients, particularly who have metabolic syndrome and or diabetes, uh, because blood sugar is obviously such a critical factor for everyone, but uh, for them, they're, they're more borderline or on the edge. So that's that's really the the connection that I that I would add to that. Yeah, one of the one of the most interesting um, findings that came out in the dementia literature this year was about dementia prevention and fiber. It was found that uh, the higher the fiber intake, the more, less likely you were to develop dementia later in life. 
Um, one thing I'd be curious to know is how well they controlled for other factors. You could argue that uh, a person who eats a lot of fiber might be engaging in other healthy lifestyle activities as well throughout their life. Uh, regardless, I think what this literature points out, you know, it's one more uh, reinforcement of the benefits of lifestyle in uh, dementia prevention, in cognitive decline prevention. I think also we might say, you know, we know fiber as a prebiotic and uh, this might just be putting an exclamation point on the gut brain connection. If you're eating more fiber, you're going to have a healthier microbiome. We know that can affect brain health. And I would return back to uh, my, my earlier question, my rhetorical question of, you know, why do we consider the brain as privileged and not amenable to lifestyle and dietary changes? So this research really points out that, hey, if you're eating fiber, you're probably uh, doing something neuroprotective and we shouldn't consider the brain as somehow separate from the body, despite the Cartesian split that occurred with old, good old Rene and his mind-body separation centuries ago. So um, let's take that message to the field as well. The brain may be the most amenable organ to lifestyle changes. Dan, top that, would, would you? I can't top that. I, I would add to your point that you know, when we're looking at fiber, we're uh, very likely looking at some indirect effect of the or and or direct effect of the gut microbiome. And then uh, it, often, I think we're looking at some effect of the gut microbiome on uh, intestinal permeability. And then you get to all sorts of uh, systemic issues. So I think that clearly that's one of the areas that we talk about incessantly, or I do at least. And, uh, but for good reason, I think they're all connected. And I think that's the, uh, while the, uh, it was dementia and fiber, I think there's a lot of biologic plausibility that the microbiome and intestinal permeability are linked into that equation. Well said. Turning to the literature on social determinants of health and discrimination, these, this we know is an antecedent of chronic disease and poor health later in life. So there was an interesting article that came out showing that uh, experiencing social determinants of health and discrimination earlier in life leads to um, more rapid immunologic aging, you, uh, leveraging that uh, the technology of measuring aging that, that's really uh, coming to the fore now. Uh, a few thoughts on this, Dan, would be, boy, this sure speaks to the importance of clinicians. We as clinicians attending to our own implicit bias and really addressing that with every visit, with every patient in the way that we gather ourselves for that patient. Um, <clears throat> identifying social determinants of health and experience of discrimination is obviously much easier than ameliorating it. And especially, you know, when it's something in the past that's uh, a past event, as opposed to an ongoing mediator. Um, I guess it also makes me wonder about, uh, is there an opportunity here too for shared medical appointments? Does peer support, will peer support help individuals uh, somehow modulate their physiology in the way that it's been affected by experiences of discrimination and social determinants of health? I don't have the answers, Dan, but I'd love to hear your comment. Well, I think that we have been talking for many years about stress and 
uh, the cortisol response or cortisol and DHEA and various other uh, hormones and neurotransmitters that are involved in the stress response. And it's, uh, it's good that the literature, which has been there and has now been heightened, is talking about other, um, uh, other stresses on the system and social determinants of health are clearly one, individuals of people of color and of lower economic status, there is now, at least uh, for me, it's, it's become uh, much more into my sights of thinking about that when I see patients, of asking about those kinds of uh, issues or, or um, uh, uh, trying to decipher if that's part of the, their stress of doing it and uh, an ACEs on all individuals that I see. So I, I think it's another uh, call to, to be looking at what are uh, the stresses in a person's life and social determinants of health are, have to be right up on top of that list. Well said. One of the topics that came to the fore in 2022 that just gave me a sense of gratitude and kind of saying finally was the article that came out uh, confirming that yes, diabetes can go into remission. And uh, I struggled with this when I was working in the academic setting before working with IFM. You know, 20 years ago, I was you know, letting my colleagues know diabetes can be reversed. You can take this problem off the patient's problem list. And I got all kinds of pushback. But in practicing functional medicine in, in those years, it, it happens regularly. And our listeners know this. So I love the myth-busting aspect of this, that this was published. Uh, I think it can really accelerate the field too and uh, change the mindset of the medical community that we do not need to think of a disease or a diagnosis as a permanent tag, a permanent jersey or with irreversibility. These, these conditions are reversible, mostly with the foundation of diet and lifestyle uh, interventions. I think this can be a big opportunity for public health messaging, but also for uh, practice market messaging for individual practitioners that, you know, we can now confidently say, hey, we can change diseases. We can really help you reverse diseases. And obviously, again, another opportunity for shared medical appointments, individuals with diabetes getting together and reversing their disease together. We've already seen that in our functional medicine field. I'd love to see more of that. I'd love to see this kind of research accelerating that. Dan, what are your thoughts on that article? Well, that article in the, uh, I think was the American, it was not sure what was the, the uh, publication, but it was the American Diabetes Association. And I'm just, uh, as you are, I'm thankful because now I don't have to, I was uh, you know, for many years, a little res reticent to say, oh, we can reverse that because it uh, it put me at odds with mainstream medicine, which I don't mind being at odds, but uh, I, I don't want to uh, to uh, be too at odds. And now I think, you know, as we've talked about before, what does it take uh, something like 17 years for a uh, for an idea to uh, to get into to start in the literature and then to get into clinical practice and I think just as you've said I think we've all seen uh, a diabetes reversal and uh, this is just a a good uh, it, it's good that we're on the same page I think 
All right, so our last topic of 2022 that we chose as a hot topic is the review of systems becoming retired. This was really an opinion piece, not so much a research, but there was an opinion piece arguing whether or not the review of systems as it is taught and and, uh, performed in the conventional medical history taking is valuable. Does it lead to actionable clinical um, insights? And the review of system is an organ-based activity where you ask about symptoms related to certain organs. And uh, that's always been part of the traditional medical history. If you really do look at the value of it, you'd be hard pressed to say how this translates to healthcare savings or health outcomes. What I think the opportunity here is IFM has developed a different kind of history taking that uh, that um, that is adjunctive to this. We don't do away with the review of systems, but in taking a history that involves personal antecedents, triggers, and mediators, we're getting further upstream and we're getting much more specific to what might be affecting the health of that individual than just a list of symptoms, which we know are much more downstream. So Dan, I think this is an opportunity for the functional medicine field to step in and say, if we're going to question the review of systems and its value, then we have something to offer you. We have antecedents, triggers, and mediators, because these not only get at the root cause further upstream of the person's health problems, it's also a much more personalized intake than is a review of systems. Because one antecedent uh, discovered will lead you to ask very specific questions of that patient about other antecedents, triggers, or mediators, for example. So I think we got a real opportunity here to change the medical paradigm, uh, to really bring our gather step to the fore in the way that we incorporate antecedents, triggers, and mediators, and the organized step, how we organize those into a hypothesis about what is affecting this person's health and what are the highest priorities to address therapeutically. So I'd love to hear your thoughts to close out this podcast, man. Well, Robert, I think you you said it, uh, you encapsulated it in a wonderful way. I think that what we're doing, and I'm at least not ready, as you said, to throw out review of systems. I, I do have people fill that out, but I think infusing the, the timeline and antecedents, triggers, and mediators into a thorough intake is is the way to go. So I I just agree with you. I agree with this uh, uh, this article, and I'm I'm hopeful that there can be a, a, a more infusing of those two of conventional and functional medicine in this way. Well, with that, we're going to conclude this podcast. We really thank you for your attention. We thank you for the community we've had in this year, 2022, and we look forward to and hope for an even better 2023. Dan, any final words from you? Well, you wanted me to talk about Yogi Berra, I thought. Yeah, I, I think, think we got to go there. Yeah, just just to uh, uh, kind of say uh, about uh, what can you predict about 2023? And it reminds me of uh, Yogi Berra uh, quote in, I believe he said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. So I'll, I'll leave you with that. With that profundity, we will lead you to the new year. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Lukaser and Dr. Luby for wrapping up an eventful year and sharing your insights about the most exciting topics in the functional medicine ecosystem. 
And thank you to our audience for exploring so many important topics with us this year. We can't wait to learn with you in 2023. To join the conversation on this topic, visit IFM's pages on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about functional medicine, visit ifm.org.